It was getting late when he took the boat out for a spin. He shut off the engine to lay back for a good look at the night sky. That's when Alan Lightman tells us something happened that he'll never forget. I felt like I was connected to the stars profoundly. It's part of the long thread of human connection to the world. Coming up, we'll hear how searching for stars influenced an MIT professor's view of the universe and his place in it. When you travel to the northeast of France, you can join the Brotherhood of the Saber by decanting a bottle of champagne where you use a sword instead of a corkscrew. And you have the sword caress the bottle to the rim. And the top of the bottle comes off with the cork. Mm-hmm. With no spill. Guides from France introduce us to the traditions of champagne. And listeners tell us about the places they've been that really stoked their spirit. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. In just a minute, Alan Lightman tells us how having free time alone with the night sky allowed him to get in touch with something mystical, something people have wrestled with throughout the ages. Listeners tell us about some of the places they've visited that boosted their spirits. And find out how what Dom Perignon said was like tasting the stars has fostered festive traditions in the Champagne region of France. That's all in the hour ahead on today's Travel with Rick Steves. It happened on a summer evening while gazing at the stars on a moonlit night all alone in his boat off the coast of Maine. As Alan Lightman described it, he turned off the motor and laid back for a moment to look at the night sky. What happened, he says, changed his life. And now he better understands his place in the universe. Alan Lightman is a physicist and a humanities professor at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and he's written a number of novels and books about science, including the bestseller Einstein's Dreams. He explores the ideas that inspired Einstein, Galileo, Carl Sagan, and Thomas Aquinas, and about the human longing for absolutes in a relative universe. That's all in his new book. It's called Searching for Stars on an Island in Maine. Professor Lightman joins us now from the Portland studios of Maine Public Radio. Alan, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Rick. I love how you wrote, No one was out on the water but me. It was a moonless night. I turned off the engine, and it was quiet. I laid down in the boat and looked up. And then you, the scientist, had a mystical experience. Can you tell us what happened? Well, I felt like I was falling into infinity. I felt like I was connected to the stars profoundly. And I felt like the vast expanse of time from the long-distant past before I was born to the long-distant future, long after I would be dead, was compressed to a dot. I felt connected to nature and to the entire cosmos. And wow. I'm sure that many listeners have had the same experience, that feeling of, of connection to something larger than ourselves. In your book, you wrote 20 short essays featuring thoughts on atoms, truth, death, stars, hummingbirds. How do these relate to that experience you had on the boat that night? The essays are, are all about the dialogue between science and religion. And by religion, I, I don't mean organized religion or religious institutions. I mean the personal, vital, immediate feeling of being connected to something larger than ourselves, which I call the transcendent experience. So all of the essays in the book are, in one form or another, 
about the transcendent experience, which is not quantifiable, it's not logical, it's even hard to articulate, versus the reductionist view of the world that we inherit from science. And, and both ways of being in the world, both the reductive method and, and the transcendent experience, they're both part of being human. They're, they're both part of the human experience and both very necessary, I think. So we're mixing up God, poets, science, all while gazing at the stars. Uh, do you believe in God? Well, I am somewhere in between an agnostic and an atheist. I share the, the view of Einstein about God who said that the subject and the question is too vast for our limited minds. He also believed in, quote, a beautiful and mysterious order underlying the world. He did, and I think that that beautiful and mysterious order and the experience of it is what happens in the transcendent experience, which can happen lying on your back on a boat yeah, in Maine looking up at the stars. Couldn't it be that, that you scientists just don't need to personify that in, in the form of God, but you're talking about the same thing? I'm not sure that we're talking about the same thing. I think that scientists can have a transcendent experience, certainly. Mm -hmm. There are many versions of God, and it depends on what version you're talking about. Uh, there's some religious views, such as in deism, where God created the universe purposefully, but then did not intervene after that. And mm -hmm. there are other religious traditions, such as in a lot of Judaism and Christianity and Islam, where God intervenes occasionally in the physical world and performs miracles. That view of God, the intervening God, strictly speaking, is incompatible with science. Um, mm -hmm. But the transcendent experience that I'm describing does not, may or may not involve God. It, it may or may not involve a belief in God or the existence of God. It's a larger category of experience of feeling connected to something larger than ourselves. And I think that we see it in the cave paintings, the Cro-Magnon paintings, uh, and Lazy Zay and Lascaux, I think we hear it in Beethoven's Eroica. It's a large category of human experience. Uh, it's part of the, the long thread of human connection to the world. That, that, that's, it's that that's, transcendence. That's what we're looking for. It's the transcendence, and yeah. it may or may not involve God. And that's something to strive for. I, I think that's one reason I like travel is because I have these opportunities to walk on a ridge and be really close to the sky. For, for me, mm -hmm. that's, that's the best church in Europe. Mm -hmm. And I guess what I'm hungry for is that transcendence to, to gain an appreciation of that Beethoven symphony in the context where he produced it. Oh, man, that's what's very exciting. And I think it's almost subversive in our, our materialistic world. Yes, well, I think we've all experienced the transcendent experiences in, in various ways. Einstein said that the most beautiful experience we can have is the mysterious. Hmm. That is the fundamental emotion that lies at the cradle of true art and true science. So there we have the transcendent experience, the mysterious. I think it's so interesting, Alan, to think of this mixing of poetry and science. And it is fun to think of great thinkers that sort of surprise you with the respect they have for this spirituality or transcendence or 
religion or mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it. Carl Sagan, I believe he wrote, the notion that science and spirituality are somehow mutually exclusive does a disservice to both. Yes, I would, would agree with that. Certainly, I'm a scientist, and I consider myself a spiritual person. To me, spirituality is opening yourself up to your emotions. It's opening yourself up to everything that the world has to offer, both things that can be quantified and things that cannot be quantified. It involves feeling a connection to something much larger than yourself. And to be able to do that is sort of a freedom. It sort of doubles your your realms of exploration. Yes, it's all part of of human experience, and of course, science is a very, very powerful way of, of knowing the world, but science has its limitations. Alan Lightman writes about the quest for absolutes in a world of scientific knowledge in his book Searching for Stars on an Island in Maine. Alan also teaches the practice of the humanities at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And he's written a number of novels and nonfiction books, including Einstein's Dreams and a TED book called In Praise of Wasting Time. We have a link to Alan's book with the notes for this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Alan, if we could just close with some thoughts that might come to you. Uh, I mean, when I read through your book, I can just imagine what it must be like lying in a hammock on the island, surrounded by trees. Talk about the last time you were having that beautiful moment on an island in Maine, kind of tracking your breath and and being so in touch with what's all around. What what was it like? Well, the last, this would have been a year or so ago, but I began thinking about my mortality and realizing that in 50 years I'll be gone and a couple hundred years my house on the island will be gone and if we wait long enough, the land masses will have shifted. But then I began thinking there is a way in which each of us is immortal, and that is that our actual atoms of our body will remain even after we are dead. That is, if I could label each one of my atoms with my social security number and follow it, that my atoms would still be here after I'm dead after this special collection of atoms that makes my brain Hmm. has dissipated. And some of those atoms will be, have dissolved in the sea, and some of them will be floating around in the air, and some of them will be parts of other people. A thousand years from now, 10,000 years from now, some of my atoms will still be here, and some of them will be parts of other people. So I was going to say, wouldn't it be nice to be able to look at a flower as both a scientist and as a poet, and you've taken it one step further. Wouldn't it be nice to look at a flower and to know that someday you might be part of that flower? That's right. Alan, to me, this is so exciting to be able to appreciate Beethoven, to be able to look at a flower with a different perspective, uh, to be able to be in the moment. Uh, I was just in Iceland, and there's so many opportunities to put your camera away and to to be in the moment. I I was just at a Mm -hmm. flamenco uh, evening in, in Andalusia, and to put the camera away and to be in the moment. It's, it's a huge challenge for us travelers these days to be in the moment. Uh, I know that uh, Acadia National Park in Maine actually has a, a program designed to help people actually be still and, and be close to nature. What advice would you have or what experiences have you had? You live next to Walden Pond. How can our world inspire us like Walden Pond might inspire a poet? 
Well, I think first we have to recognize the importance of disengaging from the outside world, the noise and the rush and the heave of the world around us, then make the time to just take a quiet walk. Mm. Uh, I live near Walden Pond, and several times a year I'll take a walk around the pond. It's about a mile and a half in circumference, and usually there aren't many people around. And just to be alone with your thoughts, to pay attention to what you're seeing, don't take your smartphone. Don't spend your time taking pictures of things instead of looking at the things yourself. Mm-hmm. Arcadia National Park is a beautiful place to just walk and open up every pore of your skin to nature. Talk about good travel advice. Alan Lightman, thanks so much for sharing ideas that came to you while searching for stars on an island in Maine. Thank you, Rick. You can tell the sun in his jealous sky When we walked in fields of gold Up next, we check in with listeners at 877-333-RICK to hear about the places they've been that really spoke to them on an emotional level and will stay with them for the rest of their lives. Then we share a little bubbly as friends from France share the secrets of champagne. I'm glad we get an hour to journey together each week. Thanks so much for listening to Travel with Rick Steves. Sometimes when we travel, a place we visit or the people we meet really resonates with us on a special level. Where are some places you've been that really stoked your spirit? What's something positive from your travels that you'll never forget? Something that gives you a boost every time you think of it? Let us know here at Travel with Rick Steves at 877-333-7425 or by email. We're at radio at ricksteves.com. Carol's on the line from Bel Air, Florida. Carol, what's a favorite memory from your travels? We travel quite a bit, but what I remember, I think, the most was in 1997 on our very first independent trip. We went to Ireland. And I was talking to our priest before I was going, and he said, I want you to do something for me. When you go there, I want you to stand on the Cliffs of Moher, and I want you to sing St. Patrick's Breastplate. I can't carry a tune, so this was <laughs> sort of an unusual request. Our very first day in Ireland, where we were staying, the gentleman said, I want you to go out and do something, do something light, because I know you're tired, but don't go to bed yet. He said, go on out to the cliffs, and that's where we went. And I'm standing on the cliffs, the wind from the Atlantic blowing in my face, blowing so hard that the seawater is actually being blown up from so far below me. And I sing this song, and I can feel the power of God in that. And even years later, when I stop, I think about it, and I can feel it. I can smell it. It's it's so real. And we try to incorporate those kinds of things when we travel, stopping, slowing down, taking a moment to connect with the spiritual, those thin places where, where you feel God stronger. And talk about a great place to do that, Carol, on the Cliffs of Moher. This is in the far west of Ireland. These stony cliffs rocket right out of the sea, straight up several, a couple hundred yards high. And you were there, and there's always a stiff breeze. I can remember leaning into the breeze, and it's got that wonderful, salty, fresh air coming in from the Atlantic and blowing your hair all over the place. And uh, 
to tie that in with your Catholic faith must have just been a beautiful thing. What is St. Patrick's Breastplate? It's a song about the Trinity, and it starts out, I bind into myself today, the strong name of the Trinity. It's based on a poem that St. Patrick is supposed to have written. So it's very beautiful and associated with Ireland. It's a, a difficult tune because it changes, and you don't hear it often in church, and it's very long. It has, I think, seven verses to it. But it was the perfect place for that music, and I, I don't hear it uh, without thinking and being back there again. And you were right there in the land where, what, 1,500 years ago, St. Patrick used the three-leafed uh, shamrock to teach the concept of the Trinity to his parishioners. And you, you can see, you know, the, the places where the priests were that long ago, you know, and go to Glendalough and see the, all of these ruins. Some of them are in ruins. But it's very moving. It's very touching. You know, there, there is something to be said, Carol, about going to a place where for centuries upon centuries, people have been there for the same reason, especially it's of a spiritual place. I have that feeling in Assisi. Whenever I go to Assisi, I, I just love to climb up to a ruined rampart and look over that stony town and remember, wow, 800 years ago, St. Francis could have sat on these very rocks I think of the joy that, that he shared with his community back when he and his monks were called the jugglers of God, making the Word of God so accessible to people. And then I, I listened to the bird song, and I remember how Francis was inspired by the birds and how he loved creation and loved nature. And there's the same bird song that, that would have inspired Francis, and I'm sitting on the same stones. And to be aware of the heritage and the history and the beautiful teaching of a great person and then to tie that into my reality today. That really does give travel something extra, doesn't it? That connection to the past and to the future also. I think a lot of people don't allow themselves to have that kind of magic in their travels. And, uh, you know, it can be in a conventional religious kind of way, or it can be in a, in, in a more personal way, just connecting with nature, if you like. But one way or another, you've got to free yourself to enjoy that, and it, it enriches your travel experience. Yes, taking time. We go on in the last few years because it's easier for us to do that, but we always take some time out to get away from the groups, to go to sometimes to a small church, to go to the cathedral for a service, you know, something that is we're stopping and looking and listening and being thankful. Yeah, and it's, it's uh, important to take that moment because a lot of times we've always got too many things to see in a day, and when we're on our busy sightseeing schedule, it's just a dash. Sometimes you got to take a moment and let the experience breathe. A lot of times I have a great, great experience, and then I forget to just savor it for a few minutes, and that's kind of a discipline. Have you had any other experiences um, beyond Ireland in your travels? Quite a few. One time when we were in uh, Antwerp in the cathedral, we went to a service there, and a group of, I believe they were Japanese tourists, I'm not certain, but they came up the side aisle during the service, and they had their heads bowed and their hands together, and they were reverent. I had the feeling that their beliefs were not the same as ours, and yet there was that connection there with the spiritual. I was filming once in Israel, and we were at Sea of Galilee, and the Church of the Beatitudes was uh, up on the, on the hilltop overlooking the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus gave his Sermon on the Mount. 
the energy wasn't quite right for the camera, and I was a little bit disappointed because I had been there the year before, and it was just filled with joy and filled with praise. And then suddenly, a big church group from Kenya came in, and they all started singing their African spiritual songs, you know, instead of the American songs that I would find in a hymnal. And it just enlivened that place. It was amazing how to be there at that moment when that group from Africa had come in. It just turned on the light switch for the Church of the Beatitudes. They're like magical moments, and you'll find them everywhere if you take the time to just slow down a little bit. And those are the moments are what you remember years later. You got it. Hey, Carol, thanks so much for your call. Well, thank you for having me. All right. Happy travels. Barrett's calling from Dallas in Texas. Barrett, do you have some uh, thoughts about making travel a little more enriching from an internal and spiritual kind of way? Sure. I, I think maybe a, a couple of ones that are more communal and maybe some that are more uh, solitary. So to me, the city of Sevilla, I'm a Protestant uh, like yourself, but uh, you know, sometimes you have to have a little bit of fun. And I tend to find that the Catholic cities tend to be a little bit more boisterous. And so just love Sevilla and you know, had a really special time where it was it was midnight. The city, of course, Spain really never sleeps, so that's you know about ten o'clock in the states. And grabbed a guitar and uh, started playing with some locals. And we were out in the street for about an hour, just jamming until basically the neighbors told us to stop doing that. But it was a great experience because it was cross cultural. We were speaking the same language. There was dancing. It was just completely spontaneous. It was a it was a ton of fun, and I think it sort of you know was indicative of, of just what a neat environment place that Sevilla is, and also what a religious place it is. But you, you had to make it happen by being available and then responding with a, yes, I'm with you. Exactly. Knowing a little bit of Spanish helped, you know, so I, I showed them a little bit of Rolling Stones, and they showed me a little bit of uh, flamenco, and it was great. I love that when you get into that kind of a situation. I remember a long time ago, I was visiting some friends in Bulgaria, and they took me up to their family cottage up in the in the mountains. And there was no electricity up there. There was no record players or, or anything like that. But they wanted to share their music. They would sing and dance their folk music, and then I would try to sing and dance whatever was popular at the time in my world. And just that chance to be together, no electricity, and just sharing the culture and singing and, and having music in common, that was a memory that uh, stuck with me for decades. I mean, I think you're kind of hitting the nail on the head. I mean, music itself is a pretty spiritual thing um, that I think can really cross a lot of cultures. And kind of a similar experience to that was was being in Notre Dame. And I think, you know, really anytime you're in one of these Gothic cathedrals, it's such an awe-inspiring venue to be in. Just to think, you know, there were these people that really had nothing, you know, in the Middle Ages, but who, you know, whose faith was very strong and they were willing to commit their lifetimes and you know, much of their life earnings to making it happen. And it's just incredible the dedication they had. In fact, we, my wife and I, we had been out touring Versailles the whole day and had a wonderful tour of that. And we came back in right as the tourist crowds were dying down for Notre Dame. And, and we came in, the priest was just giving the evening mass and the incense was blowing up to these beautiful stained glass windows. It was dark inside. You could see the, the choir in the background and the priest was saying mass and it was a really pretty incredible experience for, for those of us who were tourists and those of, of local Parisians to just take that in, take in the beautiful space and all of the, the liturgy that was being said at that time as well. 
I used to take our groups to a place called Teze in France. And Teze is sort of an ecumenical, monastic uh, movement. And uh, it feels Catholic, but it's not Catholic. It's Protestant and Catholic and different religions beyond Christianity and so on. And uh, it's right there in the Cluny area in Burgundy where the very first monastic orders were born. And Teze, T-A-I-Z-E, it's this um, sort of place that's into ecumenism and multiculturalism and music and also silence. So there was silence, there was meditating on icons, and there was singing together in different languages. Uh, a lot of people have heard the Teze music in their own churches here in the United States. But there is a place in France that welcomes visitors where you can go and just immerse yourself in that world. And it's, it's quite a bit of culture shock if you have um, not been in that tradition, especially for a Protestant. But I found it really stimulating. Number one, we Americans oftentimes are afraid of silence. And uh, all that meditation and, and focusing on icons was something that really was uh, a trip into a different realm and part of the beauty of travel. That's fantastic. Hey, well, thanks for your call, Barrett, and uh, continued happy travels. Okay, thank you very much. We'd love to hear about a place you visited that really stoked your spirit and what made it so special to you. Send us an email to radio at ricksteves.com. I need to let you know that the conversation with our next caller was recorded prior to the tragic Camp Wildfire in Northern California. Elizabeth from Paradise, California joins us now to tell us about the high point from a last-minute trip she recently took to Europe. I uh, arranged a whole trip to Europe, three weeks, five countries, in one week. And um, that's the most spontaneous I've ever been, you know, with travel. But um, I also did my genealogy before I left. I arranged everything with the help of the Internet, and I traveled with my millennial. And whatever I didn't know how to do, she knew how to do. Well, that's always good. Somebody (laughs) along who's a little more techie. (laughs) It was fun. It was fun. I just can't believe how the world has changed since I started traveling in the 80s. Right. So much. And how was your trip? Where'd you go? So much I love, so much, and the beautiful people. I mean, even with the British, you know how they have the, the, it's an old cliche, like, oh, stiff upper lip and not that friendly. I mean, by the time I got off the British Airways flight, the stewardesses were giving me kisses. I go, this is wonderful. (laughs) You know? So many people think the world is angry and and scary. Mm -hmm. And uh, Mm -hmm. and one of the fundamental takeaways of it going on an international trip is you realize the world's full of beautiful people. And uh, to get out there, especially for your first time, it reminds me I kept bumping into this one sister, Sister Helen from Kansas. I saw her three or four times just coincidentally (laughs) while I was in Paris. It was her first time out of the Midwest, and she got over there to Paris. She had all these preconceptions, and Everything was just being, you know, jumbled up in her brain, and everything she thought was going to be one way was a different way. And she was like a little kid with an all-day pass to a cultural <laughs> super garden. And uh, every time I saw her, she was just wide-eyed and sounds like you, where the flight attendants are just uh, kissing you goodbye. You they know? were wonderful. Well, the thing is, I work as a nurse, and I talk to so many people, and sometimes, sadly, happily, before they pass away. And mm-hmm. sometimes they tell me, like here in America, oh, I never got back to Ireland, mm. or I, I never went back to Romania, you mm-hmm. know, And but I love my life here, but it would have been mm-hmm. nice to go back. Mm. And that's why I'm saying with travel, you know, it's like we spend our money, I don't anymore, but on frivolous things, you know, and um, 
I think if you don't do that for a year, maybe even two, mm -hmm. you have the money to travel and you have the money to go on a nice trip. Because you never know. Like, I mean, so much stuff has happened in the news. You never know how many more years mm -hmm. that you have to take that trip. You know, I've never thought about that. But if, if part of your work is uh, working with people towards the end of their life, uh, you mm -hmm. get to talk to people and you get to hear their regrets. And mm -hmm. I hadn't thought that a big regret would have been not going right. back to the old country and oh, uh, yeah. and celebrating your roots that way. And it's something that uh, I think would not be regrettable if you organized your life in a way to do that while you can, because a lot of people realize they wanted to do it when it's physically, it's just too tough for them. So that, that, that would be an important thing to, to be mindful of. Right. And as you know, like in the USA, I mean, everything is so, it still could be better, but everything's handicap friendly and you know, but not in Europe. Still. No. There's cobblestone streets, there's stairs, you That's know. That's right. And I noticed that. I go, oh, boy, some of my clients, they couldn't do this. So now you went to Spain, and what was, uh, tell I me one, one moment in Spain where you were just touched emotionally. Well, my maiden name is Murillo, M-U-R-I-L-L-O. Uh, the famous and, painter. Um, yes, well, I'm glad you know. I didn't even know until, gosh, I guess into my 30s. But what happened is I went to the Prado Museum in Madrid, with my daughter, which is even more special, I can show her about our family. And I just, you know, I speak Spanish, so I walked up to the desk and said, where's the Murillo picture? Can you show me? And they go, oh, senora, not one picture. We have two rooms. Because the king and queen at that time really loved his religious painting. Two rooms oh. filled with Bartolomeu oh, Murillo. I was just shaking. I know I, I could hardly run over there. And when I ran over there, there was a little old man, maybe about in his 80s. And I think they do that in France, too, where they're really good painters, and they just have them copy a certain work of art that they like, yeah. you know. So he was in there, I was in there, and then the um, the guard was in there. <laughs> mm -hmm. But it's so, that man was just so in the moment of painting one of the Murillos. And I just thought to myself, I was just so, almost like I felt like relatives that have passed away were in there with me. Mm. And I've always been an artistic person with sewing, with um, creating, with painting. And I go, this is where I got it. So your heritage is Spanish. It is. And you'd go back there, and I can just picture the place, the museum, that beautiful museum, the Prado, right? And, uh, mm -hmm, and, Prado. and you've got all of these people that, when you go into the neighborhood and to the piazza during the passeggiata, or the, the paseo, mm -hmm. you've got all of these uh, ruddy, beautiful faces, and then you go into the museum and you see them on the canvas. And you go, mm -hmm. these are the people that Murillo were painting, or Velasquez, or, or Goya, and they're right here in front of you. And in, in your case, yeah. it's your family. <laughs> It is. And, uh, you know, to pluck that artist out of all the artists that they could have, and then I started looking maybe through their eyes like, okay, why do I like this? And it's just angels and beautiful and, you know, so humanistic. And I thought, oh, you know, and he's there, Murillo's there with Rubens, Rembrandt, Tintoretto. I'm just looking at the little, mm -hmm. I made a whole little photograph thing of it. And I was just crying. I really, at the desk, when she mm -hmm. told me there was two rooms, I started crying. I go, I can't believe this. Well, Fantastic. good for you to look that up, especially um, <laughs> you being Elizabeth Murillo. When you go to yeah. Madrid, you've got to see the Prado. Elizabeth, thanks so much for your call. Sure, thank you. Okay. Always love what you do. That's Elizabeth from Paradise, California. We were able to check back with her after news of the fire that leveled her community. 
Elizabeth tells us that she was prepared for the worst and able to escape with her important papers before the flames reached her home and that she was safe and in good spirits in Sacramento. Next, we lighten the mood a bit as we toast the new year in anticipation of good things to come. Guides from France join us for a look at their country's closely guarded traditions around champagne with tips for enjoying the beverage as well as the region it comes from. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Tour guide Stefan Bozajev from Sofia, Bulgaria is here to bring us a traditional Bulgarian blessing for the new year on Travel with Rick Steves. This is a blessing, very powerful blessing from a, a Bulgarian heart and Bulgarian soul. And get ready for some Bulgarian. Surva, surva gudina, vesela gudina, červena jabolka v gradina, zlatin kvasna niva, polna kašta sa slanina i kuprina, život i zdrave do gudina, do gudina, do amina. Amen. Amen. And what did you say in English? And I said roughly the following. Let this year be very fruitful. Let we have red apples on the trees. Let we have golden wheat in the fields, silk and bacon in our home. But let us all be very healthy. Be healthy. Stefan Bozadjev from Bulgaria. Blagodaria. Blagodaria. Thank you, Rick. The region of France that gives Champagne its name sparkles with possibilities for travelers. To help us plan a trip to the Champagne region of France and to provide pointers for enjoying the good stuff, we're joined now by tour guides Julie Sanvaux and Virginie Moret. Bonjour, mes amis. Bonjour. Bonjour. So Champagne, what do you think about uh, when I say the word Champagne? Party, celebration, friends. Okay. Bubbles, effervescence. And if you're looking at a map and you say Champagne, what do you think about? Eastern France, northeastern France. One of the most northern regions where they grow wine. And it's, it really is synonymous with the, the beloved bubbly wine. Is, now, they must work hard to protect the image of oh, Champagne because absolutely. everybody produces this kind of wine. And a lot of people call it Champagne. But the people of Champagne try to say it's only, only us yeah. that can call it that. I lived for 10 years in the U.S. And when people were saying, I'm bringing Champagne... I would be like, Mm-mm, this is Californian sparkling wine, but it's, you know, it's branding. It's what we call the terroir in France. Yeah. You know, wines from Champagne, they have to come from there and they have to follow uh, methods, you know, Champagne for making method. that. Exactly. To be called Champagne. So there are bubbly sparkling wines from other parts of France yes. that are not called mm-hmm. Champagne? What yes, are they, what are we they have called? the Crément d'Alsace, mm-hmm. Crément de la Loire, uh, Claret de D. So pretty much every region of France where so they make claret, wine. Claret, I would pronounce it as an American Claret. That's a, a bubbly wine? Not the same Claret as what was exported to England. Okay, that's no, a different... Claret, yes. Claret. But that word is used for the bubbly. And yes. then a Crément. Crément. Sometimes they call it Mousseux. And in Italy... Prosecco, Prosecco, yeah. Spain. Cava, the same Cava, methods yeah. of making champagne, but you mm-hmm. can't even call it méthode champenoise, mm-hmm. but you have to call it traditional methods of making bubbly wine. Okay. Even Yves Saint Laurent, I think it was Yves Saint Laurent back in the 90s, he tried to make a perfume which was shaped like the cork. Yeah. The bottle was shaped like the cork of champagne, and he called it champagne, and there was a lawsuit. No, you couldn't so call it champagne. they really are serious about that. They oh, defend. yes. Now, it goes way back. Historically, champagne right. was invented in Epernay, right? In champagne country. Yeah, and what they had to go through historically to defend the vineyards and to defend the champagne and to sell it, because it was so difficult to produce it and to 
export it because of the bottles and the bubbles and the it would go bad very easily and so they they worked so hard to make it what it is that they and they, they wanted, deserve it they and, deserve the sure, name sure and they wanted to protect the quality if somebody right. makes some second rate stuff and calls it champagne it's not going to be good for your for your brand and it's a pretty recent wine that we have because Originally, as uh, Julie mentioned, it was very north, so it's very mm-hmm. hard to get good quality wine. And they were competing for the steel wine with the Burgundy wines, which are known to be better. So after the accident of the monk Dom Pérignon, of finding out that with a second fermentation, you could keep the bubble in the wine, you know, it took a few centuries before finally when we get train transportation and the glassmaker are getting better at making glass that would not break. Okay, because then the champagne bottle has a, a reinforced bottom, doesn't mm-hmm. it? Because there's so much power packed in and here. And the glass it is thicker. Pop. When I open up a wine bottle, it doesn't pop out. But when I open a champagne bottle, of course, it pops. Is that because of the second fermentation? Yes, the pressure that you actually have in the bottle. So explain yeah. just in very easy terms, what is champagne? I mean, how do they make it? So to make wine, you need fermentation. So you, you need to ferment the grape juice. Yes, you need sugar to become alcohol. Mm-hmm. And then what happens is that in steel wine, you want to prevent a second fermentation. Mm-hmm. But in champagne, you actually want to trigger it. And how do they do that? So they add yeast and sugar, mm-hmm. which in France, you can't add anything to the wine unless you're doing champagne. And uh-huh. that's what you want to do that. And so you're going to create a second fermentation which will happen this time not in the barrel or the stainless steel, you know, vat, but in the bottle. In the bottle. Which you cap with a beer cap uh-huh. and that you turn upside down. So this is quite labor intensive then on this upside down part. It used to be very labor intensive. Because I've seen those racks and, yes. and, you know, they say they every, what, every day they have to turn, turn it, it a little a bit. Quarter turn. What's the it's purpose called, of that? It's called riddling. And the purpose is when they put the yeast in it, ah. it, when it dies, it kind of sticks to the side of the bottle. And they need to get it up into the neck of the bottle, so oh. then they can pop that bottle cap off, and the pressure will push the yeast out. Then they just fill it back up with a little bit of wine or sometimes Some sugar. liqueur or something. Mm, sometimes brandy. So, but it takes a while for the sediment to slowly spin Little down by little, it slides so Eventually down. you've spun it over time, and it's, all the impurities are at the, near the cap. Mm. And then do they, they freeze it? So they have to freeze it. And it's interesting to see how it's made by hand because originally there was no machine. Nowadays yeah. it's made with machine. But the people who were, you know, making what we call the dégorgement, mm-hmm. disgorging, I assume mm-hmm. you call it in yeah. English, uh-huh. they had to be super fast. They had to freeze, freeze uh, it, pop the, it out, pop and up. then pop it up and then and add then Add the sweet wine, stuff that or gives add it the wine. personality or the wine. Yeah. Yeah. Or sugar also if you wanted to sweeter. And that would give or, the personality to this or that wine. I exactly. would think that little extra you add and then you cap it. Mm-hmm. With the real, you know, cork this time. Yeah, the famous cork. And that process is called riddling when they turn them. And a riddler, a good riddler, can turn about 60,000 bottles a day. A riddler. Mm-hmm. So he, two hands going through, yep. turn, 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 turn. And those uh, racks that, yeah. And, and then the bottle goes steeper and steeper mm-hmm. and steeper, and eventually it's ready to... Um, and Rick is doing this with his bottle, so when yes. he opens it, it's, it's going to explode. Well, let's do this. <laughs> this is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm talking with Virginie Morey and Julie Sanvo. We're talking champagne, <laughs> which can only be called champagne if it's from mm-hmm. Champagne Country, two hours away from Paris by TGV train, I believe. And the big city is Reims. Reims. R-E-I-M-S. This is one of those towns that are hard to pronounce. It sort of rhymes with France, yes. but it's spelled like Reims. The average traveler would look at that and go, Reims, but it's Reims. Virginia, you've got a wonderful ability <laughs> to say it. How do you say it in French? Reims. Reims. 
and then you have to pronounce the S at the end, which usually we don't. We don't say Paris, we say Paris. Right. But we say Reims, so it's the exception. It's the exception. And Julie, you have uh, lived in France for a long time, but you grew up in America. Let's hear you say it. <laughs> Reims. I, I roll it a little bit yeah. That's good. <laughs> and then champagne is from uh, many different coves in uh, Reims. If you're touring, you can go to Epernay. Mm-hmm. And this is the famous, uh, the legendary discovery. The monk accidentally fermented his wine twice. And he goes running down the halls, brothers, he's in the abbey. I still picture this one a thousand years ago. Brothers, brothers, come quickly. I'm drinking Drinking stars. stars. (laughs) So that would be a great day for uh, champagne lovers. And uh, let's, should we have a little bit? Oh, Oh, yes, yes. of course. Never say no to champagne. Oh, I didn't need to sell you on that. So this is, I just love this. You know, it's sort of a tradition, isn't it? I mean, it's. It's a ritual, I mean. It is a, a ritual opening. And even when you when you start to open that, if you'll notice, you always undo the wire cage. You turn it seven times. You sur- Oh, you do? It's, it's okay, twisted so I'm gonna seven do this now. times. And I was demonstrating the uh, spinning thing, so we don't know how energized this is going to be. But I'm going to spin it seven times. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. You got it. Magic number. Well, I didn't realize that. Oh, my I life, I've been popping that. these things. And you're not at the Tour de France, so you're not going to spill So I take the little, this is like a dog's muzzle. I take that off. People collect those, the top. Now I'm going to, walk me through this. We're going to. Well, what you want to do is you want to hold the cork. Yeah. And you want to twist the bottle. You don't oh. twist the cork, you twist the bottle. Is that a And tradition you hold or? it at an angle. Yeah. And that way it shouldn't explode. Okay. But you a little bit more of an angle. More of an angle? You shook it several times. So before. I'm holding it at a 45-degree angle, basically. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I'm going to hold Turn the, the corks, and I'm turning the bottle. Yes. And then? And what you really want to do is just make it burp. You want to make it sigh. Oh, you, you don't, don't want to make it, it pop. To, it's not like after a football game and you're going to lose all no, your No, we do that, and it's fun, and that's okay. But they do it. When they do it, it just goes, pssst. Oh, so I'm going to let it, like, I'm going to burp the baby. Kinda. Right. <laughs> okay, ready? Yeah. And it good. He didn't spill a drop. That beautiful steam. It's like oh, he didn't baby. waste a drop. And, and I and I must oh, pour you some. No, please. is there any uh, trick to pouring it? Do I hold you the glass a certain way? Hold the glass at an angle, yeah. so you're not going to have uh, foam. Oh, so you minimize the foam by holding it at an angle. Yeah. And I poured about Merci. all these. Usually, things. this is actually the only wine in France where you go to the top of the glass. Other wines, you never want to have a oh. full glass because then you don't have room to swirl it. But on the ah, champagne, usually you, you go can to the top. the top. Here we go. Oh, that Lucky sounds Julie. lovely. Ooh, la, la. Thank you for telling him that for my glass. I appreciate that. <laughs> I love that. that. Now, let's just listen for a minute. I like this. Okay, ready? And it... It sort of, my cup runneth over, but it, it does it not perfect. spill. It was perfect. It was perfect. You got that foam to go up there, but not over the edge. And then you've got these bubblies. I mean, it just makes you feel festive. It does. Exactly. It's like something great happened. And then what do we say? Santé. 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 To your health. À la vôtre. À la vôtre. À la vôtre. Mm-hmm. Life is good. Pas mal, as the French do say. Not, not bad. bad. <laughs> I like that. Pas mal. Not mm. bad. And next time you come to Reims, Rick, you have to become part of the brotherhood of the saber, the golden saber. So now what is that? So you opened the bottle of champagne the way most people open it. But in France, when we deal with wine, we have to have tradition. And so there is a brotherhood where they teach you how to open a bottle using a saber. A sword. A sword. 
Wow. Mm-hmm. You mean you open the bottle with a sword? Just and you actually whack? don't spill any of it. So you have to have the right temperature. The glass. The bottle. Well, the, the bottle. glass. Yeah. And then there is a weak point on the bottle Designed of into the bottle. The seam, where the, the seam. bottle is actually seamed oh, together okay. as the weak point. If you remove the top label, you would find it. Okay. And then you take your sabre, your sword, and you tilt the bottle at a certain angle, mm-hmm. like you have now, so it's a 45-degree yep. angle. And then using your sword... The side of your sword. Yeah, you're not the, cutting it, you're yeah, sliding yeah. it. You're going to slide a little bit on the bottle to find mm-hmm. that weak point and to warm it just a little bit. And then there is no violent uh, movement in it. You just have the sword caress the bottle to the rim and then it will cut sharply the top with no spill. And the top of the bottle, the rim of the bottle comes off with the cork. Mm-hmm. So you don't pop the cork, you... No, the you, cork doesn't come out. It stays in the rim and the glass comes apart. That would be dramatic. And you've seen this happen? Yes, oh, yeah. we do it. And you I become part of the brotherhood. And you actually don't even need a sword. It can be done with... I've seen it done with a um, ladle. Oh, my goodness. Ladle. I've seen it done yeah. with the bottom of another glass. Well, Knife. Here, here's to opening that bottle any way you can. Santé. Santé. As we're learning right now on Travel with Rick Steves, champagne is so much more than just tiny bubbles in your wine. The Champagne region itself in the northeast of France is a great destination to explore. Our guides are Virginie Moret, who lives in Lyon, and American-born Julie Sanvo, who's lived in Burgundy for many years. It's great to be drinking champagne right here, i got to tell you. But uh, let's say you're traveling around France and you want to uh, have a little more background on the champagne before you actually uh, drink it. You can go to Rance and go to the famous champagne cobs. And there's, there's hundreds of champagne cobs. A lot of them are open to the public. What is the process for going to... I, I like Rance because you can get there from Paris easily. It's got a great cathedral with amazing history. It was the place for royal coronations. What, 26 kings were crowned there, France, mm-hmm. I believe, mm-hmm. going all the way back to Clovis 1,500 years ago. And you've also got Marc Chagall stained glass windows there. Oh, amazing. Incredible sound and light show. Uh, yes. What is, these the sound and light shows are just dramatic. Have you been to that one in Rance? Yes, the French are known for their sound and light show. Each time I have... Uh, American travelers, they think, oh, okay, yeah. it's boasting about the French and their sound and light show, and everybody's amazed, especially on the cathedral, because they manage to give you an idea of what it was like when those cathedrals were actually painted, because they were painted inside and out. So, so it gives laser, you an idea. It's laser lighting yes. and this glorious lighting, and you can actually uh, inhabit it with workers and kings and coronations mm-hmm. and tell the whole story on the facade. Mm-hmm. And people gather after dark. It depends on how late the sun goes yes. down. And, and you sit there in the park in front of the cathedral, and it comes to light with all these lasers and great sound. And it's I think the problem with sound and light shows is they have an image from the old school sound and light shows back mm-hmm. when I was a kid in the, mm. you know, in the uh, La Zanvalide in Paris. They had a sound and light show. And it was very boring. Oh, but okay. it was the only thing you could do back in those days. Now, it's not your grandmother's sound no, and light show. No, they're not tacky. It's, <laughs> it's called mapping. And they, and they actually, like you said, inhabit the building with the color or with the people. And yeah. so... yeah. Yeah. It's brilliant. It transforms and, and, it. It's jaw-dropping. In, in Rance, that's one place where you really want to remember to do that because that's, Definitely. I think, one of the best in France. What else do you have in the town of Rance before you get into the Champagne Caves? You have the Palais du Tau, which is the bishop's palace adjacent to the cathedral, and that houses the treasury of the kings. But that was a big deal that centuries of kings were crowned, not in Paris, but in, in, in Rance. 
And then also uh, World War II, 1945, the uh, the war was finished and Eisenhower and the Allies yes. accepted the unconditional surrender sure. of the German forces right there. And it's an amazing little museum if you're interested in that the history. The Surrender Museum, it's left just as it was when they signed. I love it. And then you can go, after you've done your history now <laughs> and your right. art, you can go out to the Champagne Cups. Let's just say you're going to go to Tatinje. That's one of the Champagne Cups that are available for the public there. What's the experience? So you go to Tetanger, it's better to have a reservation. They do a different group, you know, timing. And then you're going to go down into the cellar. So you're not going to have an elevator. You do have to use your legs. This is before the tasting. Oh, yeah. So the down tasting into the is cellar, after. that would be a, a, a series of caves deep down in that yes. kept the temperature the same all the time. Exactly. We call them crayères. So it's kind of a chalky uh, mm-hmm. stone that we have there. And you're going to see uh, some of them date back from the Roman time. Most of them will be from the you know, 14th, 15th century. And uh, they explain to you how they make champagne. They show you the riddling, the old method. And then you would finish by tasting uh, one, two, three, or four of their champagne. Tasting? Absolutely. Did somebody yes. say tasting? Did somebody <laughs> say tasting? Oh, that's my kind of tour. <laughs> Here's to champagne. Santé. Wow. French culture. You can drink it. (laughs) And this is a brut. You had a brut. Now we have uh, several types of You can uh, tell that just by tasting. Yeah, it's drier. Tasted wet. We have uh, brut and sec. Sec Mm. means dry, but it's the sweetest. So the brut is the champagne that is going to have the less amount of sugar added. Now in the old times, they used to add way more sugar than they do now. But Mm. they have to add some of the sugar. And so you want a brut when you have it as a... Aperitif, like we're having now, right? Because if it's too sweet, it's just you know that's not something that you right. want to have before dinner. Mm-hmm. And then if you have champagne with dessert, then maybe you want something sweeter. So, so you look sec. for the word. This says brut, brut. or sec, mm-hmm. so or demi sec, which yeah. is halfway through. Okay. So and but if if you're doing it to enjoy the flavor of the champagne without something sweet to eat with it, you'd probably have brut. brut. Mm-hmm. And now they're making rosé champagnes that are very festive. Mm-hmm. Right. And the difference with, you know, champagne and other wines is that you don't have a vintage on every bottle because it's actually a blend. This is a region of France which is very north for growing Mm -hmm. uh, vines. And so it's not consistent. So they have the right to blend different years. If you have a year on a bottle, it means it comes from only one year. But those are exceptional years and they're going to be more expensive. So it's better to blend it. It's the way they've been making it because they don't have the, the production that they would have other places. So I'm starting to feel this champagne, but um, let's. can you teach me just a French, um, like what you would say when you're having a good time together, uh, more than uh, santé, what would you say? If you want to be formal, you say à la vôtre. That means uh, votre santé, to your health. Um, and you, or you can say just santé. Where I live in the countryside in France, we say chin chin. Chin chin. I would do the same. Chin chin. Chin chin. chin chin. And then is there some sort of a blessing you give to people? May you live... Uh, well, santé means... To your health. health. Yeah. So and it's the more you drink, the more you have santé, the healthier the you healthier are. You get. <laughs> All right. And we're going to enjoy French culture with the help of our better understanding of <laughs> champagne. Virginie Moret and Julie Sanvo, I would like to drink to you. And thank Merci. you very much for allowing us and a beautiful slice <laughs> of French culture. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, there's one thing. You have to look at the person in the, in the eye eyes. when you're. Always. Always. Very nice. Merci bien. Merci. <laughs> Au revoir. Au revoir. Sail to God bless you and send you a happy new year. God send you a happy new year. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Catton and Isaac Kaplan Woolner. 
with help from Sheila Gerzoff, Andrew Wakeling, Sarah McCormick, and Gretchen Strout. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Cheers.